Right now, though, we're going to take another look at reopening in this province. And as you know, we, as you've been hearing on the news, Whistler and Blackcomb planning to reopen on Monday. Uh, We've talked a lot during the past few months about Big White. So we thought, why not check in with Big White, see what's happening there? Uh, Michael Ballingall joins me now, Senior VP Sales and Marketing with Big White Ski Resort. Thanks so much for coming back on the program. Yeah, pleasure to be uh, with you and your your listeners this morning from the sunny Okanagan, where there's still Plenty of snow in the Alpine. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we're not at the summer, the summertime quite yet. Uh, wanted to talk to you today, though. Last time you were on the program, it was the day you announced the early closure of Big White, dealing uh, with the pandemic and a number of COVID-19 cases. Uh, sounds like things are much, much better now. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's amazing how the business has turned around in the last 48 hours. The phone's um, we've had to employ two more operators. We now have seven operators answering the phones today. Uh, we, we, we wrote um, in, in revenue-wise, uh, so accommodation bookings for Christmas, New Year's, and next year's Family Day. Um, we haven't written revenue like this from early January. It, 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 it is a great indicator that, that people are looking for the future. They're confident that they're going to be able to travel next Christmas, New Year's. And uh, so those bookings are going well. Plus, I've, I've made a few phone calls when I knew I was coming on the, the station with you, the Sandman Hotel down in Kelowna and in Penticton, doing very well. The Royal Kelowna doing very well, up over 65% occupancy as of June 15. So they've all seen a steady increase of booking patterns um, for their hotels and their properties in the Okanagan Valley in the last 48 hours. Wow, that is very, very positive for sure. How are you feeling about staff, the vaccination rates and safety protocols as we start this reopening? Really good. You know, the the attitude and change is incredibly positive because there's a plan. I mean, you know, our uh, (laughs) it's funny. I walked into the Globe restaurant up on the mountain yesterday and 14 of our outdoor workers were in there having an early lunch because they could. They didn't have to pack their lunch. There was another option for them to dine inside. And it, it's just, it just felt like it was, first of all, you could see 14 of your coworkers in one place at one time. And, and they just knew that come July 1st, we're going to be able to have some outdoor music. People are going to be able to ride the chairlifts. They're going to be out uh, biking. The, the Alpine flowers will be in place. So it's just an exciting time that people know that they're going to be able to see their friends or relatives. They're going to be able to travel throughout British Columbia. We're getting lots of inquiries from Alberta. We have a nonstop flight for the first time starting from Montreal to Kelowna at the end of June. That's the first time ever Montreal to Kelowna nonstop. And that flight's at 70% occupancy. So there's some very good thing in the tourism world happening. That uh, is indeed. Uh, when we look at the opening dates as well, so June 15th is what the province has put as far as the earliest for opening up recreational travel throughout BC. Are you hearing from people who are trying to book before then? I mean, it's not that far away, but are you hearing from people or are you getting the sense that people are waiting for that date to come? No, we, we, we know that there are some people traveling to, and it's, it's really people that own their own accommodation here. You know, last weekend was a nice weekend. You know, if you're out on the lake, you saw people that that normally aren't opening that, that house at this time of year. It's going to be 30 degrees in the Okanagan this weekend. So I'm going to assume that there are going to be people that are coming to open up their own accommodation. But from our point of view, answering the phones, um, we, we don't open until summer, July the 1st. But the accommodation uh, providers that I'm hearing, 
the pent-up demand, people are playing by the rules. They're coming June 16th. They're coming for the long weekend. They're making their plans now to come for, for July and August, traditional time when the Okanagan is very, very busy. And we talked to you in the past as well about, uh, I mean, it didn't seem that long ago, you were talking about staff members who were breaking COVID-19 protocols. I know there were some dismissals. How are you as far as labour? We've been hearing from others that getting people back into the workforce and hiring, getting back to being fully staffed has been a challenge. Well, we're very lucky and, and, and most of the ski resorts would be the same. The, 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 the drug is the skiing. People want to come and they want to live in the mountain atmosphere. And that's, you know, that's why you have 12, 14 people living in one house together. Now that we know that you're going to be hiring employees that are going to be vaccinated, I mean, that's really important that we understand that a lot of our staff that were on the mountain had already got one vaccine back in March. So they'll be looking for their second vaccine now, and they'll be qualifying very early in the piece. And having a fully vaccinated employee just makes it easier on everyone, including our guests, the employee, and the employees that are living in these staff accommodations that are in close quarters. We're hopeful that we're going to be able to go back to having four people in a condo instead of just two, and therefore we can staff up and we can run the business as a regular operation and we can open more of the business and stay open for longer hours. It does seem like such a change since uh, the last time we spoke as well, which was also uh, because we were talking about the video that was making the rounds of the party and people breaking uh, all of the rules. Yeah, you know, it, 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 the, the end of the year is always a funny time that people, the, the, it was a great unknown. Now there's a path. Now we know the four steps. Now we know if we take the right attitude and behave ourselves, there is a path down this road. We can see it every day that we see the numbers. I know my team celebrates those numbers. I know the people that I talk to in the business world are celebrating those numbers. When you see the curve bending downwards, knowing that if we're doing the right thing and we're behaving and we're getting vaccinated, and if we're not feeling well, we're staying home, and we're using the backup plans that the government has for us for subsidies, then there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it just gets brighter and brighter every day. So we're very enthused that we're going to have a great summer. It's going to be a dry summer, so we're going to have to play uh, not only by the rules of COVID-19, but by the rules of supernatural British Columbia, and, and just do all the right things. The last thing we want to be doing is fighting forest fires this summer. That would be uh, awful, wouldn't it? I mean, we don't have to think that far back uh, either to to remember some of those hardest hit years uh, when forest fires were the big story before we even started talking about COVID-19. Yeah, everybody in the tourism world is is just reminding people that, you know, if you're going to go to the backcountry, be prepared because there are a lot of people that are going to be moving around the province because that's the only place that they can go and they're going to be trying things out for the first time. Stand up paddle boarders. You know, we're out there lecturing everybody. Make sure you take a life jacket with you because when you hit Lake Okanagan right now, it's only 14 degrees and, and that's really, really cold. And on a stand-up paddleboard, you know, things like, like just doing the right things, wearing a life jacket when you're in a boat, wearing it when you're on a stand-up paddleboard, when you're hiking in the backcountry or coming up to Big White to hike, make sure you bring extra gear, make sure you're hydrate, make sure you bring water. All the little things that we have to remind ourselves of. At the same time, are masks going to be mandatory? Are they going to be voluntary? Did you get your vaccine shot? 
So there's lots of things that we have to do in our checklist to get out to our bucket list, which is supernatural British Columbia. Uh, you mentioned masks. Uh, I'll ask you that. With the timeline saying that at the earliest July 1st could be switching to a mask recommendation, uh, does the resort have a policy on that, or do you anticipate that will be the policy? Masks are mandatory. And, and, and really, I think you'll find that at every uh, ski resort that's open for uh, lifts, Masks are going to be mandatory until we see the numbers that we respect and we get the advice from the provincial health officer. Everybody that played in the resort last year wore a mask. Everybody's been wearing a mask. I wear it to protect you. You wear it to protect me. That philosophy is not going to change until we reach certain plateaus. And we will know when Dr. Bonnie says, hey, it's safe to take off your mask. Everyone will, will feel thankful to take off their masks. But for right now at our resort and most resorts, masks will be mandatory. All right. We'll leave it there, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on a much more positive note today. Yeah, we look forward to celebrating and uh, just enjoy the great outdoors and have a great day in British Columbia. Thanks for being with us. Well, we know that the new system for ICBC came into place on May 1st. That means anybody injured in any kind of vehicle crash after that date becomes some of the first people to make a claim under this new system. And my next guest is one of those. He was hit by a car by a suspected impaired driver earlier in the month and is still recovering, will be for some time. Scott Shepard joins me on the line now. Scott, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you for having me. Uh, so take us back to when this happened and what happened to you uh, as you were walking down the street. Well, I, um, yeah, I was just out for a walk down, uh, down the sidewalk, um, just doing a little errand. Just wanted to grab, run down to the store for a sec and uh, kind of cruising along. And then I just heard something that caught my attention from behind, heard somebody yell something and I, I just started to, turn around and I didn't even really get my head turned just out of the corner of my eye. Saw front of a car barreling down on me um, and I barely had time just trying to get my feet off the ground and just you know minimize impact and next thing I knew I smashed my head on a rock and uh, and there was a bunch of people standing around me. It was the short version of what happened. Um, yeah there's a few spots I don't remember but that was basically it. I knew I was I was hurt. I was bleeding pretty bad, and yeah, it was it was pretty scary. Yeah. What what kind of injuries did you have? Uh, well, the biggest injury was uh, was to my head. I was bleeding quite heavily. Uh, turned out to be a pretty bad concussion. Um, my ankle was messed up pretty bad because impact of the car hit me just above. Well, just kind of on the right calf. Uh, bruised ribs lots of road rash all down my neck and face and you know just bumps and bruises kind of everywhere else for the next week or so it seemed like every every few hours somewhere new would hurt <laughs> so it was it took a while it took a few days for the injuries to settle in yeah how long ago was this this was may 10th about five o'clock so it was broad daylight as well and what do you Monday. what do you know about the driver about the circumstances with the driver who hit you uh, very little, um, because it was under investigation for a while, um, not really allowed to share any details. I mean, but there are some public information, which I was able to find out that, um, the driver did receive a 24 hour roadside suspension. Um, and I believe there was a ticket involved with, I don't know the exact wording, but failing to maintain 
control of a motor vehicle or, or something to that effect. So it was like a $368 fine. And I believe that was it. So where you are today then, as far as your injuries and your healing process, part of the reason we wanted to talk to you is that you are one of the first people to navigate the new system of insurance, the enhanced care system. So what has that been like, dealing with ICBC and that new system? Um, it's been it's been frustrating. Um, like I do appreciate the people. I've dealt with a couple of people at ICBC, and I have no question that they themselves are very sincere in wanting to help. Uh, the challenge is that they do work for the corporation that wants to pay out as little as possible. So um, I've already noticed there, you know, there's been some things that have come up where I've asked, you know, what about this expense? What about that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. We, we, we can't cover that. Like, well, this is, I mean, you know, it might not be a specific medical bill, but it's something that I'm going to have to do or someone else down the road is going to have to do to accommodate the way their life is, either temporarily or permanently, um, there's all those trickle-down trickle uh, expenses that uh, are just going to come with perhaps making an accommodation for an injury temporarily or a permanent disability. Um, and it's, and it's kind of scary. Uh, and there's no, no compensation anymore for loss of independence like I can't drive so I'm relying on friends to get around you know um, there's no compensation for quality of life if something doesn't revert back you know if, you, if you're unable to fully recover back to where you were before the accident um, you know it's just there's so many more things as I'm finding out as, as I get deeper into the process uh, the paperwork is it, you can easily see oh I need documentation for this and, and for that you know they ask me, you know, I ask if, if a certain thing gets will get covered. Okay, yeah, we just need documentation about this and that. And you know what? For me personally, I'm you know self-employed. It's it's really difficult to justify or explain um, what I would be earning. Like I'm starting a new, you know, starting a new gig and all. Like it's just there's so many gray areas that the the documentation that they're asking for doesn't exist. So, you know, I'm told, well, just, just put it in an email and explain it as best you can. Okay, well, my doctor says I'm supposed to rest. You know, I've got a severe concussion. I can't look at the t- uh, at a computer screen without the room spinning. Right. So, but yet I'm told I've got to navigate through all these things. And, you know, part of the new legislation is you can't have a, a lawyer advocate on our behalf in any capacity, which is... You know, it's making it far more challenging than it needs to be. I'm, I'm told I'm supposed to be resting and recovering and can't because I've got all these other things to do. <laughs> we got a, an email as well from another Metro Vancouver man who also was hit by a vehicle or was hit, uh, had a know. traffic accident. Uh, and he outlined uh, a lot of the same challenges. One of the things he said, too, mm-hmm. was that ICBC offered him a settlement, uh, saying it was the maximum amount. It was around $6,000 that was actually put into his account, even though he didn't agree to it. Uh, have you been offered mm-hmm. a settlement or have they tried to say, here's a, a lump sum of money and, and this is what we're going to give you? for your injuries? Not at all. In fact, I specifically asked that question three times to a manager that I spoke to a couple of days ago, and it was full stop. There is no financial compensation whatsoever. The only thing they'll do is pay for most of 
you know, any health service related expenses. Um, but even then it falls short, you know, per session. Um, I've got to make up the difference out of my own pocket and, you know, 50 bucks here and there is annoying, but I shouldn't have to pay anything in my opinion. Um, but no, I haven't been offered any, any type of settlement whatsoever. In fact, I was told specifically there will not be any just full stop across the board. So what happens then if you say go to a massage therapist or you go to physiotherapy or you pay for that out of pocket, are you able to then put the receipts, uh, submit the receipts to ICBC and get reimbursed? Well, funny you should ask. I'm sitting outside my RMT appointment right now. Um, This appointment is $152. Uh, ICBC will cover 82 of it. Um, So I set it up. You know, they'll direct bill. And so I'm I'm making up the the difference. So it's just more than half for this particular one. Um, so I was told at ICBC that you know I can I can go around to different health services, but that's the most they'll that's the most they'll cover. So if I do choose to go to a place that charges more than eighty two dollars, then yeah, I'm on I'm on my own for the difference. And are you concerned too? Like you said, you have a pretty severe concussion, one of multiple injuries. That's the type of injury that can show up. Uh, you don't know when you're going to be fully recovered. I mean, it could be, hopefully it's not, but you could have residual effects of that weeks, months down the road. Is that concerning that that, that could happen to you? And what are you going to do if you're not able to drive again uh, in the near future or get back to work? That is an excellent question, Jill. And yes, that's something I think of all the time and I've been asked. And the funny thing with concussions is you, you don't really know. Everybody's different. It could be a few weeks. It could be several months or, or longer. Um, and, and that's the really frustrating part. And the not knowing, I mean, I get that. If it was a broken arm or something, okay, you're in a cast for six weeks and then, you know, whatever, you can kind of plan your life and get, you have something to look forward to at the end concussions you, you just don't know uh, and that's my situation too like I, I keep going back to this this needs to change because it's not just me it's the entire province like I you know I've got some injuries and it sucks but I mean I expect I'll eventually be all right for the most part the next person might not be so lucky and how are they going to be able to navigate something if they never if they're never able to walk again or they they're permanently blinded how are they going to be able to fill out all this paperwork and like it, and not have somebody advocating on their behalf and helping them with the new system and the bureaucracy of it all. And that's that's the real reason I wanted to bring this situation out into the public is I was surprised. I was caught off guard with all these changes that, um, you know, and I didn't realize how they would get affected. You've got no fault insurance. I get, I get that if it's two people who bump into each other in a parking lot or something, but when there's only one car involved, like it's, I, I don't see how, like no fault could be up to a point, but mm-hmm. in a case like mine, when you've got a pedestrian on a sidewalk, like I have a car and I pay car insurance, but that is irrelevant in this case, I would think. What if I didn't have a car? Like, I, don't, I just, I don't understand it. There's just too many holes and loopholes, um, you know, and if I, let's say I didn't even live in BC, well, how would I navigate the system from the other side of the planet? How, how would that work? You know, am I expected to check in constantly and keep asking for, you know, medical coverage wherever I lived to, you know, for ICBC to be reimbursing me for that? Or, you know, they might not have comparable coverage or the costs might be totally different. I can't imagine 
how frustrating that would be for someone in that situation. And unfortunately, it's probably just a matter of time before it happens unless something is done. Um, you know, I, I get if ICDC is trying to cut back on what they might consider as frivolous lawsuits, but now the pendulum swung way too far the other way, and now you're punishing legitimate accident victims. So I think it needs to come back a bit the other way and settle somewhere in the middle. So that's, that's the reason for me trying to get the word out about my personal situation. All right. Well, we're going to follow up on this and hopefully uh, get some more clarification on this. But thank you so much for telling your story and for raising uh, the awareness about this. Uh, I'll let you get to your RMT appointment, but we'll talk to you again, I'm sure. That sounds wonderful. Thank you very much, Jill. Appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. Time to talk a little bit about per-vote subsidies. And the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has testified at a legislative committee demanding an end to per-vote subsidies for all political parties. And joining me on the line to talk a little bit more about this is the BC Director, Chris Sims. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Uh, so what was the, the testifying like? What did you say or what did the Federation have to say during that? Well, it's really important that people speak up about this, and I highly encourage any of your listeners who don't want taxpayers' money going to political parties to do the same. Uh, Phone your MLA, email them, and tell them to back off. And the reason why we had to make this presentation to committee is, surprise, they're now thinking about extending the per-vote subsidy. That's money that political parties get from taxpayers based on how many votes they get past its sunset date. Now, it's officially supposed to end next July, so the year 2022, and that's supposed to be the end of it. But no, now, of course, these politicians are at committee, and they're thinking of kicking the can down the road. Now, to be clear, already taxpayers have given over around $30 million in both the per-vote subsidy so how much money they get per vote, and the fact that we have to reimburse them 50% of their campaign expenses after an election is finished. So by the time it's all said and done, when it's officially supposed to be over, that's $30 million you would have handed over to them. To put that in perspective, that could hire 50 new paramedics and pay them full-time salaries for 10 years. Uh, it's a lot of money when you think about what the money is actually spent on. Now, can you br- bring us up to speed, though, because there is a bit of it's a bit of a head scratcher when you look at also how this even came about, because we've heard from politicians in the past, have we not, saying they are opposed to this type of policy and they wouldn't bring it in uh, into this province. But yet here it is. Yes, exactly. In fact, Premier John Horgan, before he was premier during the election in 2017, uh, people said, hey, you're looking at a per vote And he said, no, 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 this is not my bag, baby. I'm not going to do this. And he repeatedly said so, including on radio interviews here in B.C. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, after he became premier with his minority government, he turned around and put in a provoke subsidy and the special funding that gives back 50 percent of the funding. And we need to really stress this money is not for elections B.C., so it does not go to scrutineer badges and little pencils and all the paper ballots, all that stuff. That's fine. This money also doesn't go to helping get out the vote, like those nonpartisan commercials that encourage people to exercise their right. No, this is taxpayers' money going to the NDP party, the B.C. Liberal Party, the B.C. Green Party, you know, the Flying Monkey Party. We don't care which one it is. It's going to them, and then they spend it on stuff like lawn signs and attack ads and junk mail. 
So this is just a non-starter for us. Not one nickel of taxpayers' money should be going to these parties. Yeah, I mean, it's bad enough when you watch the attack ads or see those and kind of cringe at some of them. That's bad enough. It makes it even worse when you think that your tax dollars were the ones that actually paid for that. Uh, You mentioned, though, he he brought this in. John Horgan, as premier, brought this in uh, with his minority government. So before the last election. So he had to have had support from other parties. Yes, uh, they're all on the the gravy train, as far as we can tell. Uh, If anybody wants to jump off it now, uh, please feel free to give us a call and say that you no longer want to be taking this money and or you're going to be paying it back, something to that effect. But yeah, as of right now, all this money is flowing to the major parties, depending on how many votes you get. And again, we're not talking, you know, chump change here, $30 million. That's a lot. That could could hire 115 new, uh, brand new long-term care workers workers full-time and pay their salary for five years like that could house i did the i did the math if you can find and you can you can find nice two-bedroom basement suites with your own bathroom in vancouver metro vancouver for around fifteen hundred dollars give or take per month you could house like fourteen hundred people for that for a year so why are politicians taking this money for their partisan purposes? Again, if you love, you know, Acme Party for BC, whichever one it is, give her. Give them your own money of your own free will. Fill your boots. But there's no reason why they should be taking taxpayers' money. And a lot of folks don't know this either. Political parties have really generous tax credits, way more so than charities get here in BC. So if you give 100 bucks to a political party in BC, you get back a $75 tax credit. But if you give 100 bucks to the Ronald McDonald House, you only get a tax credit back of 20 bucks. So they're already getting tax credits that are four times more lucrative than a charity that helps sick kids' families, and they're still looking for more taxpayers' money. This, this is not okay. What was the reasoning then and the fact that when it was brought in, it did have this sunset date, so technically it is supposed to come to an end? Was it because of some of the changes when it comes to campaign financing, or what was the, the justification given as to why this was a good idea? Bingo. So at the time, uh, the justification went something like this. Okay, we have stopped, quote unquote, big money coming from big corporations and big unions on either side of the political spectrum. Fine. (laughs) So raise your own money. That's our issue. If you want to get rid of big corporate donations and big union donations, that's up to them. But they should just raise their own money the same way that they do at the federal level. Uh, Some of your listeners might remember back in 2008 when Prime Minister Stephen Harper said, hey, guys, we shouldn't be taking a per vote subsidy. No more taking taxpayers money for political parties. Go sing for your own supper. A lot of the other parties freaked out. It was one of the reasons why they had the constitutional crisis. But lo and behold, he passed it through. By 2011, it was officially on the books. We've had three full general elections from coast to coast in Canada now since they got rid of the per-vote subsidy. Democracy has ensued. The sky has not fallen. So, folks, if if you're part of a political party and you really believe in your ideas and your ideals, go share those ideals with people and get them to donate to you of their own free will. And again, you don't need to make truckloads of money in order to make inroads. Uh, The BC Green Party, for example, doesn't make as much money as other political parties, but they're still involved in debates. They're still a major player in politics. 
Uh, you mentioned that. So the federal per vote subsidy was cancelled in 2011. Are there other provinces that still do it? They're banging this idea around uh, coast to coast, but the main example that we usually try to use, because it's the most comparable right now that we have here in BC, is federal. And plus, there was just such a fuss that was kicked up over it when the Prime Minister at the time tried to get rid of it initially, and then eventually got rid of it altogether. And so we're saying, guys, again, if, if you believe in your ideas then go sell them, especially nowadays with online. I mean, fundraising has never been more straightforward. You don't even need to go door to door, even if we didn't have COVID right now. You can do online fundraising. You can do a GoFundMe. You know, heck, they can they can have, you remember the natural law party with, with Mr. Hennig? They can do like some yogic flyer competition. <laughs> we don't care. Just go raise your own money and don't take it from taxpayers. Uh, what about, so the idea then of the fact that it's supposed to end in 2022, how mm-hmm. confident are you, though, that it is going to? Not very, because once it's the same thing as a tax, right? The moment that a politician latches on to something, it's really hard to pull it away from them. It's almost like I used to play with my, my uncle's bulldog all the time, and you'd get, you'd get the, the, the chew toy in his mouth, and he'd just latch on. And you could lift him up, clear off of his little four paws, and he would suspend his own body weight. That's what politicians are like with taxpayers' money. And now this is going directly to them. It isn't even going to a pet project. It's going directly to their politics and their parties so they can run their little war rooms and their campaigns. So I'm a little worried that this is just going to roll through and roll under the radar. But if enough people kick up enough of a fuss and say, hey, you you don't deserve my money uh, by compulsion, I will give it to you willingly if you have great ideas. If enough folks phone their MLAs, we don't care what party it is, and say stop doing this, uh, they will shut it down. Uh, is there a timeline on that? Uh, you mentioned, too, you, your group testified at that legislative committee. Is there a timeline for people to make sure their voices are heard as well? Yes. So officially, they are taking submissions at this uh, parliamentary committee until tomorrow at 5, and it is called the Special Committee to Review Provisions of the Election Act. However, there are several members of the committee. They're all elected MLAs, and you can, of course, email them or phone them at any time and express your feelings on this. So officially, if you want to write something up and submit it to the committee, it's got to be done by close of business tomorrow. But I would encourage anybody to just pick up the phone and send an email to their MLA who's on the committee right now. All right. We'll see uh, if people do. We're going to open up the phone lines on this as well. Chris Sims, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, some new information coming out of TransLink shows just how big the decline in ridership is and some of the trends we've been seeing during the pandemic. Joining me now to talk more about that is Jeff Cross, VP of Policy and Planning with TransLink. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, is there any surprise here as far as we know people are still working from home for the most part in a lot of different cases, students as well? Any huge surprise that we're seeing that ridership drop around the 50% mark? Not really. I, I would say actually maybe the biggest surprise is even when we saw the third wave and the, the record uh, caseloads, that our ridership stayed in that realm of about 42%, something like that of pre-COVID, which shows just how many people are transit-oriented uh, and how many people rely on the system on a, day, on a daily basis. So the, we know that that core element of our constituency is still there, uh, is um, 
positive and a bit surprising, but it lays the groundwork for us for the recovery that's about to unfold. And do you anticipate that you are going to get even more riders back, or I, I guess there will be more riders? Do you anticipate how much of a bump you might see? Yeah, we do. We've been doing a lot of modeling on this and and looking at what other cities are experiencing, places like Auckland, London that are further ahead on the recovery. Uh, But using our models, understanding that piece, and we believe at this point that we will be somewhere in the probably high 70s to low 90s within a year to two years of what we saw pre-COVID. The biggest factor will be how many people continue to work from home and school from home. Uh, Not of all which is a bad thing to have people not traveling quite as much, whether it be on transit or in their cars. I thought it was interesting when we look at the different types of transit and where the ridership really kind of stayed the strongest. And that was on buses, uh, followed by SkyTrain, followed by Canada Line. What do you think the reason is for that? I think there's several reasons. If you look at some of our longer services like West Coast Express or Canada Line um, that are serving a lot of work trips, especially like in the central business district, a lot of those are working from home right now. They're also serving tourist destinations. We know what's happened to the tourist market, events, things like that. Versus our bus system is that that workhorse that's getting people to medical appointments, it's getting them to the grocery store, it's getting them to those essential services and work spots. Uh, so we have not seen nearly the decline, as you pointed out. And we've also noticed, and that's in our transit service performance review, that some areas like in Surrey, on King George Boulevard and Scott Road, the ridership uh, losses were not nearly as high which shows the way the ways that people use the system there and they rely on it are different. Uh, do you have concerns about getting people back uh, to, onto transit in that I would imagine we're talking about uh, there would be people who have been using transit throughout because either they choose to use transit or they don't have another choice. That is the only way they're getting to and from work and maybe they're an essential worker so there isn't the option to work from home. So they've stayed on the system. Uh, I was talking anecdotally to a car salesman uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, who said at the beginning of the pandemic they were overwhelmed with people who were buying vehicles they didn't feel safe on transit. That was one of the main reasons. Are you concerned that there is that group of people that maybe have found uh, that purchased a vehicle or found other ways to get around that simply won't come back to transit? Yeah, that is a concern. Um, people need to, if, if you're working from home, that's a different thing. And you don't need a transit trip or you don't need a driving trip. Uh, you know, we're okay with that. It has a monetary impact in the short term, but that's a good thing. Versus if you're changing modes and it, that's costly for you as a household, it's costly for everybody because it's adding more congestion and it's reducing the efficiency of our transit service, that we're concerned about. We know that roughly half of our customers have been using the system regularly, as you pointed out, and they're obviously, they feel comfortable with it. They understand the safe operating action plan that we have in place. But we need to make sure for that other half that had options or didn't rely on it as much that they know what we've done. And that's a big chunk of our ridership. Um, We also know that uh, they will be having needs, uh, as we saw from the provincial announcement earlier this week. We anticipate that there'll be all sorts of demand uh, materializing over the summer and into the fall.
whether it's going to school, to university, to your office, to events, things like that. So we want to make sure that people are aware of all the efforts that we've undertaken during COVID and will continue through the fall uh, to keep people safe. We've had, Jill, uh, no documented cases of transmission on the transit system, in part because of all those efforts that we've collectively undertaken. That's a pretty good uh, uh, track record to, to say there's been no documented cases. Yeah, we're really thrilled with that. I know people, the mandatory masks on transit, the physical distancing that we've been using on our platforms and at our our uh, compass machines, uh, the extra cleaning that we're doing, uh, the uh, copper pilots, all of those things, they add up. And people and asking people to not travel when they're unwell. And so uh, we're really, um, really pleased with that and people feeling comfortable about that. So what does that mean then for if BC does stick to the timeline, if the numbers go the way that health officials want, that under the BC plan, July 1st is when we switch to a mask mandatory to a mask recommended system. Do you anticipate then will we see the mask mandatory rule on transit stay in place? We're not sure yet. We will have to work with uh, the province, with the PHO, and with our colleagues at BC Transit, which we're using the same sort of approach as they are, to exactly how we'll uh, roll back, if you will. But we've relied on the guidance from the PHO uh, as we introduced masks. We'll certainly look to follow their lead in that regard. We want to make sure that our customers are safe and that they feel and comfortable uh, in riding transit. Uh, Because I I guess it really depends as well on vaccinations, because on the one hand, like you said, there have been no documented uh, cases of transmission. People, I think, for the most part, have felt quite safe on transit. But it's one thing to say that when you get on a bus or on a SkyTrain and there are only a few other people around you, it's going to be quite another thing if we get to a point back to how we remember transit when you get on and you're standing really close next to a bunch of other people. That is true. Now, one of the things that we're anticipating, as I said, you know, we probably will be somewhere in the 80 to 90 percent of our uh, pre-COVID ridership next year, which does mean, especially during the peak periods when people are working from home, that we won't have the same level of overcrowding on the system so that we experienced previously. So people can take some comfort in that. Uh, as well. But yes, we need to make sure that we're also relaxing the capacity constraints that we currently have on our vehicles in a logical fashion that people feel comfortable as they reintroduce into public. You know, one of the things that we thought was very positive in the restart announcements by the Premier and and by uh, Dr. Henry was that their confidence in the vaccination rates and the efficacy of these vaccines, these are on the more optimistic of our scenarios, which means that if people are feeling comfortable gathering, whether it be in your own home, uh, in your office, at an event, the same will hold true for transit. So that's certainly helpful in our projections. Uh, You mentioned the monetary side of this as well. With this extension or this extended period of time that we've seen with reduced ridership and with it even being a while before you're going to be back at that 80 to 90 percent, how do you pay for this or how do you make sure that that TransLink is still getting the revenue that it needs? Well, that's certainly where the Mayor's Council and the province are spending a lot of attention, supported by us. Uh, We're very thankful through the 
uh, restart contributions that we had came, coming from the federal government and the provincial government that kept us whole financially for our losses uh, from fair revenues, from uh, reduced fuel tax, and from the increased costs on our service, providing this essential service to keep us whole through the losses roughly through 2021. Then, Jill, the, the question becomes, how do we start uh, in the new normal, uh, balancing our expenditures and our revenues. And uh, as we reported about a month ago, uh, that range is still fairly large. Could be anywhere from 100 to $300 million. The midpoint's about $180 million. So that's the things that we need to start working with the province and, and the Mayor's Council on for, for longer-term solutions. Do you think riders should be anticipating or bracing for fare hikes? Uh, no, uh, we do have fare increases that were planned as part of our investment plan. That is not going to be how we fill the goal, uh, the, the hole, I should say. Uh, in fact, with the contribution agreement from the province, part of that went to reducing the fare increases that had been planned to pay for service to only inflationary levels uh, once a year uh, across the system and across BC Ferries and BC Transit. All right. That, uh, we'll leave it there for today. Jeff Cross, thanks for joining us uh, for talking more about this. Appreciate your time. It's a pleasure to be here, Jill. Thanks.